first on film and entertainment. And, well, Gregory King, hello to you. And I've got a, a non-film question to start things off with. A gather round of football, which has never occurred before in the AFL, being held in a home of football, no doubt about it, Adelaide, the word gather round, as in gather around or gathering in one city, can't they have, I mean, surely there's a better name for it. Is there not? Well, it probably is, but the idea is that they're all playing in the one state, they're all gathering around the one area, uh, but look, so far it's been quite exciting to watch some of these games, but I don't know whether the NFL will continue, given their history of stuffing up all these great experiments. Well, I think it's been a, a, an incredible success so far. Obviously, in terms of the crowds, when I read the other day that eight of the nine matches had sold out, obviously we're talking about stadiums that are not going to seat 100,000 people, but that doesn't that's not the point. Obviously, they're also making a lot of money out of this because uh, how... And, and you and I have spoken about this before, price gouging. Do, do you know that it's costing up to $1,200 return to go from Melbourne to Adelaide? $1,200. That's with Qantas. And they were saying the other day $900 with the cheaper airline Jetstar, right? And then accommodation, 500 bucks a night upwards. So that surprises the opportunity to announce a gather round, though. It's not normally that expensive to go to Adelaide. No, but I mean, surely this whole idea, and you know, I'm not having a go at Qantas because I like Qantas and I flew Qantas the other week, but you know, in the endeavor to try and get back the money that it lost during COVID, and this is a question for all of you, I mean, Jackie, you're about to go overseas. So, I mean, did you find the pricing worse than it was prior to COVID? Jackie? Oh, well, I've, I've never flown to the place that I'm going to before COVID, so I wouldn't have any idea. I, like but I don't know why. I don't know why you think it would be any different for airlines and hotels than it is for Uber and taxis and anything like that. Prices go up and down, and I really think in our society we've got to accept that. That's what happens. Well, I just I I understand. I mean, the the predictions, if you like, that Qantas had in terms of making money back and so forth. They've, they've exceeded those because part of that's to do with the pricing. And that I, I just think it's got to be reasoned and reasonable. And at times, I just... Yeah, okay. It, it's probably excessive. Fair enough. That's but, it. Um, uh, yeah. I mean, Peter, do you... Uh, I, actually, I've never asked you Do you, Peter Krauss, uh, I'm talking to now. Peter, are you somebody who travels much or not really? Because you go to Germany quite a bit. I used to when I was a part of the Munich Film Festival and, and et cetera, but, uh, and Berlin... But uh, it's now over five thousand dollars to uh, to now fly to uh, uh, Berlin and back, and it's just ridiculous. It's just impossible to do. Yeah, I mean, this is what I'm getting at. It's the average punter. You know, it's it's fair enough to to save up for a holiday, but if you're going to ostracise people and it's only for the wealthy, it's it's fascinating as well. I don't know whether you read this, Jackie Hamilton, but uh, there was a story about the fact that the people who were buying first-class seats used to be the, well, the the, the more um, seasoned, shall we say, and those with money. It's changed. It's changed dramatically, so much so that younger people are buying first-class seats as an experience that, that they claim because they can't afford to buy a house. Now, wow. That, that that is a quantum shift. Are these the are these the ones who were doing the smash dabo? Probably. 
<laughs> but I think I think it. The... Oh, there's an element there where I, I know this has been said for some years that they reached a point where when the house prices went, shall we say, as they say, through the roof, uh, it, they, there was an element of you know a, a, a thing where they had given up. And so they thought the motor stall was there, but I don't know if that translated quite to first class overseas. I mean, that's very expensive. Well, it's certainly a far cry from having smashed Avo to, to, to doing first class and going to Europe. Having said all of that, that's an interesting uh, introduction to first on film and entertainment. I, I Peter, you and I uh, last night, no, the night before, we we went along to the opening of the fantastic film festival. Uh, look, you've been to this before. I can't say that I have. There are a series of outrageous films, 20-something in the program, correct? Correct. And the more ridiculous, uh, there there was one short that was shown. I don't know whether it was a Japanese, and we're talking about not only heads being lopped off, but nakedness and heads being lopped off at the same time. And the short that we saw about gnomes will never let you see sausages the same way, correct? Correct. I think it's a Dutch-Belgian uh, co-production and it's uh, incredibly well filmed, but it is pretty nasty. <laughs> yeah, you're talking about gnomes, the six-minuter. We don't yes. see a lot of lot of shorts, but what about that Japanese sort of make makeup, dress-up, nakedness and... Oh, Lion Girl. Lion Girl, which I think is ending the festival. And it's on at the... Correct. Lido Cinema, by the way, I was quite impressed by, I, I presume he's the director of this particular fantastic film festival. He is extremely eloquent and just sort of, things were rolling off his tongue at the rate of knots about virtually every outrageous movie that he could lay his hands on. Exactly. Hudson Sawada, absolutely. He, he programs it really well because it is meant to be an out there film festival showing the extremes of uh, of behavior and of uh, language and of uh, sex uh, sex and so on so uh, and he and he has a built-in audience for these outlandish films who want to see uh, films that are really challenging well there was that reaction of course to his speech last night which only went for about five minutes but everybody was hooping and hollering and carrying on which was terrific you know it was it was a good fun atmosphere at the Lido so I'm pleased that uh, there is a cinema for it. The only thing is, boy, oh boy, parking around that place, around, it's Hawthorne, isn't it? Is yes. Very, very difficult. So just be mindful of that. Uh, give yourselves a few more minutes if you are going to go along to the Fantastic Film Festival. And we will talk about the movie that we saw when it officially opens in you know, general release. But I should say that Polite Society is going to be a real winner. I have no doubt about that. Do you agree? Absolutely agreed. It's uh, very funny and very clever and uh, a nice cultural-based, uh, female-based film. Talking about the outrageous, we've got to start with Mafia Mama. Uh, th this is a MA-rated 101-minute film, deliberately over-the-top mafia spoof, and you can either view it as errant nonsense or as stupid fun, right? So it, it, after starting in one camp, I've got to say, I ended up going with the flow and opting for the latter. You've got Tony Collette as the star. She plays Kristen, 40-year-old married American mother who's just packed off her beloved son to college, right? Teenage son. She herself is in a job where she's always walked over and her husband, 
is about to be caught out. Then out of the blue, she receives a phone call from a woman in Italy named Bianca, played by Monica Bellucci, who is a very fine and seasoned actor. This phone call basically tells Kristen that she has to come to Rome and attend her grandfather's funeral. He, her father's father, is a man she has not seen since she was a child growing up in the Italian capital. After that, her mum took her to be brought up in the United States. At first, Kristen dismisses the notion of returning to Italy, dismisses it out of hand, but circumstances see her change her mind. Once she gets there, Kristen discovers to her horror that her grandfather was in fact the powerful head of a mafia clan. His dying wish? For her to take over the family business. Of course, Kristen objects wildly, but she's given no choice. Now, what's also worth mentioning is that her family's clan is in the middle of a bloody war with a rival mob. And with things going awry in the United States, Kristen is after some hot and heavy romance. Now, I did say at the beginning, if all this sounds stupid, that is because it really is very stupid. And it's also ultraviolet. A violent rather than violet. Although, like the rest of the movie, those graphic scenes are played for laughs. For for those that I might well, for those that are prepared to swallow that, because there'll be some people who are gonna say this is too violent. The whole thing's carefully stage managed to take the Mickey out of the genre. And you've got Kristen as this deliberately, desperately floundering fish out of water who gets her sea legs during the course of the film. Uh, the screenplay by J. Michael Feldman and Debbie Yoon from an original story by Amanda Str- I'm not sure how you pronounce the surname, S-T-H-E-R-S, Stethers, something like that. The director orchestrating this baloney is Catherine Hardwick, who was responsible for the Twilight series. So everything about Mafia Mama pushes the envelope. It's about how to package excess and bring with it laughs. Jackie, did you get any laughs out of Mafia Mama or have you not yet seen it? I did uh, go along on Friday afternoon, actually, and saw Mafia Mama. Um, and yes, I had some laughs, not a lot, but, but but enough laughs to also enjoy the fact that the public screening I went to, the audience got a real kick out of it. Oh, did you? It was a front. Yeah, people were laughing out loud. Oh, um, right. Yeah, that's good. It, it, it is escapist fun. It is silly, yes. And uh, as you say, it does start off. I mean, my thoughts were exactly yours as a fish out of water story. Um, but um, I really felt it became a story. Of, well, it wasn't. I felt it very clearly became a story of empowerment of a woman, of um, going from uh, crushingly horrible situations with men. Um, apart from her son, who it was her husband and her co- colleagues were obviously exaggerated characters, but really rather ghastly, to her becoming um, empowered in a way of being, you know, just your average um, killing machine, really. And <laughs> as her son described her as a real badass. Um, so, you know, that's, that goes with the humour. That was a little bit crude where it didn't need to be in some of the humour. Um, but I didn't mind the story. I mean, there was plenty always going on. 
love the Italian countryside, the beautiful scenery, the architecture, the inside of those magnificent mafia, you know, homes, of course, where we don't know where that money came from, but um, the the interiors and the setup was absolutely beautiful to watch visually. Um, just, uh, just take care with a bit of the violets. I thought it was probably more, gra- I mean, it was more graphic than funny with the stiletto. I just, mm. that went just a bit too far and the language was unnecessarily crude, but yes, a good fun film. Well, really, incompetent lackeys and bumbling assassins. They're the name of the game, aren't they, Greek King? Uh, if you say so, Alex. You have the same predilection. Go for it. This is a fairly generic action comedy, and it's a variation, as Jackie said, on that usual fish-out-of-water scenario, and it incorporates many of the tropes from gangster films and rom-coms. But I thought it was something of a mess, and it doesn't really work. The script was a bit lazy, tapped into many of the familiar tropes of the mob, mob movie, including several obvious nods to the Oscar-winning classic The Godfather, but I thought it was tonally uneven, and the elements of screwball comedy sit uncomfortably with some jarring moments of Tarantino-esque violence, including that scene Jackie referenced there, where Colette kills a hitman by repeatedly striking him in the face and the groin with a stiletto heel. And this scene prompted a couple of walkouts at the session I attended there, um, and there is some bloody violence here as well. Um, I like the... Um, cinematography of the Italian countryside, you can't go wrong with that. Um, and there's lots of food and drink to whet your appetite as well. I was almost tempted to give it an extra half star for that, but I didn't in the end. Uh, well, that's the title interview, interview, interview is surely if you've got nice food and drink that, and, and a beautiful Italian countryside, that elevates a movie. But, I mean, you've got to say... Normally, normally it does, but this one, now nah, just something wrong with it. Um, Tony Collette is normally a good dramatic actress. She doesn't do much in the way of comedy. And I thought her performance early in the film was a bit shrill, but she did make the most of her transition from bored, frumpy housewife to beautiful, confident mob boss. I like the two bodyguards, Aldo and Dante. I thought they brought nice touches of humour and material. Um, and Sophie Nomredi got some big laughs for her role as Jenny, um, Kristen's sassy lawyer friend, who advises to make, make the most of her eat, pray and fornicate trip to Rome there. Um, but I thought some of the approval characters were cliches and characters there. The film looks good, um, but ultimately this is something of a mess and a disappointment, and it makes Jim Abraham's awful 1989 comedy Mafia look like an Oscar winner by comparison. Well, I mean, look, I, I agree that Sophia Nomvetti, as this sort of legal, legal Jenny, I thought puts in a really strong showing. I thought she was a really good role. Uh, but look, you talked about Tony Collette. Well, I mean, she doesn't try to make Mozart out of mincemeat, does she, Peter? Uh, possibly not. I tend to agree with just about everything Greg has said. It's a, it's a, a film that I call a straight-to-video cinema release. It's a, it is a mess, uh, unfortunately. And uh, I'm just sorry, sorry, to... it's not clear. What do you think is a mess about the film? I'm just getting to that. <laughs> uh, I, I, I think it, it's a film that falls between two stools. It uh, it doesn't know whether it wants to be a parody, and there is that empowerment aspect, although the character development is too fast and unbelievable, or whether it's meant to be a gore fest, which reflects the uh, the Godfather type movies. It's a it, it's a very uneasy sort of mix, and I. Th- think that's the problem with this film. I mean, Tony Collette does her best. She sort of smirks and smiles and frowns her way through the film, but 
she's not given much to work with. And Monica Bellucci is so wasted in this film uh, as having a, a sort of a support role without much to do. I still remember a couple of years ago, apart from, uh, Greg, uh, you mentioned uh, that 1989 film. I agree, that was uh, quite a good parody at the time. Um, I remember Isabelle Huppert being in a, a French film a, a few years ago playing a, a mafia mama. And she actually did it so well because it was a comedy, it was a parody, and it didn't have to have all of that gore. Now, if what was that called, Peter? Because I remember that. What was it called? Yeah, I'm trying to remember that too. It just, it just came into my mind, but I'd have to look it up. But um, uh, yeah, that that was a very enjoyable film. But in this case, uh, I don't know why they had to resort to the overt violence uh, unless that was the intention from the beginning. Catherine Hardwick directed this, and she she and Elizabeth Banks with Cocaine Bear. There's obviously some female filmmakers who feel the need to work in the male territory of overt violence and uh, and gore and so on. And I don't think it is effective. I think it, it sacrifices a good story uh, to do that. So, I mean, when you say the male domain, I mean, traditionally the male domain, but I, yeah. I, I think that you, you've got to sort of look at things under a different microscope these days and in a different lens that it, it's not going to be about men or women. It's going to be a, about a particular genre or a style of movie making and, why can't men, women, and gender neutral make movies about whatever they want to do? I mean, they can. And they no, of course, of course they can. I, I've no problem with that. But it just seems to be it's it's sort of selling out um, the the script and selling out whatever the script is. In this case, in uh, Mafia Mama, it's not a terribly good script to begin with. So I was quite disappointed by it. I, I was expecting either something much cleverer or much better uh, as a parody. Or, all right, if you're going to go for the full gore violence, then you do that. But this film doesn't know what direction it wants to take. Well, I mean, my, my take on all of this is to lower your expectations. The best way to enjoy Mafia Mama is to let it sort of, it's slapstick. It's slapstick action crime comedy. Just let it wash over you. That's the way to sort of get the most out of it. But I understand the commentary about the violence because I think all of us have said the same thing. It, it really does push the envelope and... You know, that 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 stiletto scene you can't unsee, and uh, it, it is yeah, it, it's gross. That's the only way of putting it. I, I don't doubt that that was the intent of Catherine Hardwick, but it's also about reading the mood of the meeting and about whether audiences are going to accept it. I suppose. So let's get some scores. I think Jackie and I'll probably be a bit higher than the rest of you. So let's let's lower the bar and start with uh, with you, Greg. Uh, four out of ten. As I said, I was almost tempted to give it a. Uh... An extra half star for the um, beautiful scenery and the wine and that, but in the end, I just said, nah, can't do it. Okay, Peter Kraus. Yeah, I tend to agree with Greg, and the scenery is not an issue. It's about story, so four out of ten from me. Okay, so Jackie, it'll be interesting to see whether you and I are aligned. I, I'm prepared to give this a six out of ten, and you? Um, Alex, I'm coming in just under that at five and a half because I'm not... By by all my praise that I did give the film, mm. I wasn't saying that it was a great film by any means, and I can see so many faults. But I think for uh, uh, there is probably an issue with who the audience is for it because you wouldn't necessarily get a younger audience who can go with that kind of gore fest and foul language um, going to see a Tony Collette film. She, uh, the, the audience that was in the screening I went to was an older audience 
Fortunately, as I said, they did laugh, but I. Uh, but we keep referencing that stiletto scene, which I think was over the top for the audience that this film was going to um, be aimed at. So five and a half out of ten from me for an easygoing audience. There we go. We are on JR 88 FM. Please keep listening 24-7, programming to stimulate the mind. That's what it's all about. Let's turn, we go from one star Australian actor to another, The Pope's Exorcist, which is also MA rated and 103 minutes. And it's been inspired by the files of the Vatican's chief exorcist. I was not, not, not sold on what I was delivered. In fact, much of it, again, appeared errant nonsense to me. We're talking 1987. The contention is that the new guard at the Vatican sees no need and no future for Father Gabriel Amorth, played by Russell Crowe. Amorth, of course, thinks otherwise, and he's answerable to the Pope himself, played by Franco Nero in this film. And the Pope is also old school. Now, exorcisms, well, they're few and far between, according to what is said in this movie. Amorth uses psychology when necessary to help clear the minds of some who believe that they are possessed. Then the Pope calls on him to investigate arguably the most challenging case of his, Father Gabriel Amorth's career. Concerning a young boy called Henry, played by, I'll try my best to get this pronunciation semi-correct, Peter D'Souza Fahoni. Anyway, Henry is inhabited by the devil at an old abbey in Spain. And he's just moved there from the United States with his mother, Julia, played by Alex Esso, and his older sister, Amy Laurel Marsden, after the death of his father a year earlier. So basically, Henry and Amy's dad died a year ago. Julia inhabited, Julia's the mother, inhabited the abbey from her husband, And with no means of support, she was left with no choice other than to relocate, much to the annoyance of the teenager Amy. She's sort of this recalcitrant character in the film. The building itself, the Abbey, is in desperate need of repairs and construction specialists are there on hand when they arrive. Also, at that point, is a local priest, Father Escabel, played by Daniel Zavato. Henry hasn't spoken, this is the young kid, hasn't spoken since his father passed away in a car accident. Suddenly, he's talking in deep and menacing voice, with threats aplenty, including liberal use of profanities. So Father Morth arrives, teams up with Father Escabel to try to purge the evil in their midst. And what they find is that the danger is far more severe than Father Amorth had imagined, and it goes to the very essence of the church. It's based on the books An Exorcist Tells His Story and An Exorcist More Stories by Father Morth. script was written by Michael Petroni, who was responsible for The Book Thief, and Evan Spilotopoulos, The Unholy. Now, I've got to say, no subtlety or originality in this screenplay. I found it terribly cliched. I really did. And the director, Julius Avery, who did Samaritan, seemingly, and this is the the quote that you used for your last movie, Greg, every trope in the horror genre to capture our attention. We're talking loud, creepy sounds, thunder, lightning, bodies slammed against walls, 
blood, ongoing fear and more. And this troubled me. Russell Crowe, who I think is a very fine actor, they've asked him to bring an element of humour to his characterization, which he does. It doesn't work in the context of what the Vatican's chief exorcist is presented with. It, it serves to undermine his authority. So uh, they've certainly taken a lot of liberties with the character. I think there. Look, it's been fifty years since the um, exorcist hit our screens and scared the big Jesus out of us, and there've been a lot of imitations along the way. And this film just ticks off all the usual cliches, many of which you've um, pointed to there, um, Alex. And uh, yeah, there's nothing original about this film. I thought Russell Crowe brought a touch of gravitas to it, you know, and he, he realises he's in preposterous material, but he's going along with it here. Uh, and director Julian Julius Avery gave us a superior overlord, which dark mix of World War II action and horror um, set against the backdrop of the DJ invasion. That was a much better film. Here he effectively ramps up the cliches, injects a couple of jump scares into the Mercedes, and I thought the cinematography from Carlin Motagship, um, what shot in a dark palette worked and enriched the sinister undertones of the film. And I thought there was great production design from um, Alan Dilmore about the interior of the house and everything. And some of the special effects were quite well done. And Jed Kurzel's score, I thought, was suitably on ominous there. Uh, but yeah, it's um, just another a long line of um, cliched horror movies about demonic possession there. Said it all before. Um, Nothing new here. Move on. Mm, well, I mean, you, you look at the uh, character of Daniel Zavato, just goes through the motion, playing second fiddle to, to, to Crow. I, you know, there, there wasn't anything particularly special about that. And I, I mean, the Esso is cast in a rather Im, Im, impotent role where most of the time she's just called upon to play scared. I, I mean, there was there was more there that could have been brought out. Marsden goes from being uppity compliant after Henry's meltdown. And as for D'Souza Mahoney, most of the time, he just has to lie in bed and allow a sinister voice to take over his his real voice. Now, you know, it just it just didn't work for me, Peter. What about you? I tend to agree. It didn't work for me either. I mean, who can forget the 1973 original Exorcist film, which was sure. such a, a fantastic head-turning experience. But uh, with with the the Pope's uh, exorcist, I, I think they tried to portray the real life um, Father Amort. But what they've done is they've fictionalised the, the the stories of his uh, actual supposed exorcisms, if you believe in that or not, um, uh, into this uh, rather ridiculous story of multiple demons. And um, I'm, what I found incredible is that halfway through the film, when they reveal. Uh, and that it's not a major revelation, but they reveal the the history of the uh, of Christianity and the Inquisition, mm-hmm. and and of the comments that are made that well, of course, the Christians really were not guilty um, uh, for the Inquisition; they were inhabited by demons. So that really explains it. They they were really innocent. Uh, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, look. Uh, Obviously, the director has thrown everything possible at the audience. The last 15 minutes of the film is just uh, uh, a fest of gore and uh, of violence and of uh, people throwing themselves around the room and, and so on. It's just, uh, it is a, one cliche after another. Um, and it, it for me, the New Zealand actor, Russell Crowe, uh, does that. <laughs> does that. <laughs> How long has he lived in Australia for? Ah, I thought his nationality was New Zealand. 
I'm not sure. Anyway. Maybe maybe both sides of the divide, shall we say? We, uh, we... It sounds like you disowned him. Peter. Yeah, I. Do... <laughs> Is it just because of this movie, Peter? Or uh, if it... no, 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 fair enough. A lot of fun. Go for it. I'm joking, but I have to say the the other sequences that amused me greatly was that I read that Russell Crowe wanted to ride around uh, Rome in a Vespa, even though that was not what Father Amort uh, did. He wanted to do that. And when we see scenes of him riding around in the Vespa, I thought, hey, it's the Flying Nun revisited. It's fantastic. Travelling <laughs> all the way from Italy to Spain on that little Vespa is a bit of a, a, a journey, isn't it? It's certainly, that's true. That's right. Yes, I hope he had frequent flyer points. But uh, anyway, <laughs> look, uh, this film is, is, again, a bit of a mess. Again, it's a video release that's gone straight to cinema. Uh, a disappointment, and uh, if you want to see a good Exorcist film, go back to the original 1973 one. Yes. I thought, I, I thought Ruffle Crow here looked like latter-day Raymond Burr with his girth and that beard and the fedora he wore. Yeah. Mm, well, I mean, there's nothing terribly surprising about the Pope's Exorcist. Eh? It, it tries too hard to scare before it reaches what I thought was an, an inevitable conclusion. I also found it very disappointing. What about you, Jackie? Well, I'm going to take a different, I've got a different take on this from you guys because I avoid horror, scary films always, probably ever since The Exorcist came out. Um, and so uh, to me, it, it doesn't go along the familiar tropes and the cliches because I'd, I haven't seen all these cliches over the years of these films that I've avoided. So I actually found it quite fun. Um, and I've got to say, I thought the New Zealand... New Zealander Russell Crowe stood out as um, it really was his film. He, I liked his little bit of, you know, bit of a wink to the, uh, you know, in there. He was a bit of a fun guy. I thought his Italian language and accent were really good. I thought that was fabulous. That convinced, well, convinced me, put it like that. Again, I love the, um, uh, in Spain, I love the, um, the, the ruinous, the ruined abbey, the, the, the um, house that needed repair. That was a great setting for it. You could tell it was going to happen. The, the women in, in the cast weren't quite so, weren't particularly convincing and had rather meagre roles. But um, uh, the little boy was, I mean, I didn't find it super scary. Uh, even though I could see all the, you know, the sounds and music carrying on, trying to bring about this, the darkness and the light and the, and it was a bit more with things like the continuity I thought was pretty ordinary, whether the blood was in the beard or then suddenly in the next scene, not in the beard, as if he'd rushed off to the bathroom in between. But overall, the production values were fabulous and it looked really good. And I sort of enjoyed this film. Mm. Very good. All right. Well, I mean, does that mean you're going to go along to horror more often? No. <laughs> so you went along to this because it had Russell Crowe in it? Uh, I did. I, wa I want to keep up with the body of work of sure. great New Zealand actors. Um, yes. But again, I guess I found it sinister, as Greg said, rather than scary. I mean, not particularly scary, but definitely I like the sinister streak through it. All right, well, let's again go tallest to shortest or shortest to tallest as it's... I think I'll be the low point on this one. I'm giving it a four out of ten. Greg? Well, uh, five to five and a half. Mm-hmm. Peter? 
I, I certainly agree with you, Alex. I'll give it four out of ten. And by the way, Jackie, that uh, Isabel Huppert mafia film was Mama Weed. Mama Weed, okay. And Jackie, what are you going to give the Pope's exorcist? Oh, yes. The Pope's exorcist, I, I gave it six and a half out of ten. Okay, there we go. So, I'm trying to exercise it from my brain. Yeah. <laughs> Very, um, thank you. I, for those people who are short of dad jokes, just give him the first on from an entertainment. And, and Greg is here for your entertainment. This is wonderful. Okay, we are moving on, folks, to a movie which is also silly. I mean, there's a lot of those today The Innocent. Now, this won the best screenplay at the César Awards, the French equivalent to the Oscars. It is outrageous. It's a comedic crime romance, M-rated 99 minutes. And you've got a character called Sylvie Lafranc, played by Anouk Grinberg, 60-year-old prison drama teacher. Mm. So there we go. That cannot help herself. I mean, I say that because she's got a habit of falling head over heels in love with and then marrying the inmates that she's teaching drama to. And inevitably that ends badly. Much to her son Abel, Louis Garrel's Louis Garrel's chagrin, that's hard to say, Louis Garrel's chagrin, much to Abel's chagrin, Sylvie, the mother, is up to her old tricks again. This time with smooth-talking thief Michelle Ferrard, played by Rojdi Zem. Understandably, the recently widowed Abel, the Louis Garrel character, is deeply suspicious, but no amount of protestation from him will prevent Sylvie from marrying Michelle in jail. Abel, well, he opens up to his best friend, Clemence Genevieve, played by Naomi Melland, who has also, well, she was also the best mate of Abel's wife. And I, we don't really get to know, I can't, I can't recollect exactly when his wife died, but it was recently. That's all I can say. Abel and Clemence work together in an aquarium, and Abel will do whatever it takes to protect his mother. In turn, his mum surprises Abel when she decides to abandon drama teaching in prison to open a florist shop, as you would, of course. It's there that Abel discovers incriminating evidence, suggesting that upon his release, Michelle has not abandoned his old ways. A bungling staking up follows, and its heat narrative takes off in a a somewhat surprising and totally kooky direction. The movie The Innocent has been co-written and is directed by Louis Garrel. It's a film that I would describe as pleasurable to watch to a point. Premise, yeah, it's not a bad one, but it doesn't quite fit together the way it could have. I, I thought it actually lost a beat in the run home. In its attempts to be clever and catch us, the audience, out, I reckon it zagged too often. It, it just... It tried too hard at the end. But the pick of the performers undoubtedly is Naomi Merchant, Merlin, rather. She won the César for Best Supporting Actress in this particular role. I understand why. Really joyous disposition that she brings to Clemence and unmistakable chemistry between Garrel and Merlin. The relationship between Abel and Clemence forms the or one of the central components of the plot. And his restraint deliberate restraint as Abel is a sharp contrast to her choix de vivre that she has an abundance of. Clearly the pair is drawn to one another. So, I mean, then you've got the Anouk Grinberg character deliberately over the top as the woman who loves to love. And finally, Roshdi Zem, 
quite charming, but also very calculating as Michelle. And it's another one of these movies, The Innocent, that I reckon just let it wash over you. Bit of funny nonsense. I mean, underpinning it all, I suppose you can say it's, it's uh, you know, what, what it takes to make a relationship work. So, you know, if you want to go into a little bit more depth, but this movie doesn't have a lot of that, I've got to say. It's really, it, it's out to tickle the funny bone. And it does that to a point. Peter, how far does it really go in achieving that, in your opinion? Yeah, not as far as I would have liked. It's, it, it was sold as a comedy, and yeah. yet it's it's really a dramedy because it uh, it deals with a, a number of issues and there's a setup that uh, I thought was very clever later in the film, which uh, I thought was, was well done. But you're, I, I agree with you, Alex. It, it tends to overstay its welcome a bit. It's interesting how Louis Garrel... Uh, is a well-known actor and, and now filmmaker, and he always casts himself as this sort of naive sort of character who has mm. to learn that uh, things may not be as uh, as well as they could be. Look, uh, overall, uh, it's an enjoyable film. Uh, it's it's well made. It's fairly tightly done, but I also agree with you that uh, the payoff is possibly not as strong as it uh, uh, could have been. So, but overall, it's it's a, a reasonably good French film. I wonder, Peter, because I mean, what? How old would he be for getting close to forty or something? I, I don't, yes, yes. So I mean, whether something that he could get away with maybe ten years ago, simply partly because of his age, he couldn't because he he's painted as this supposedly intelligent fellow. I mean, he's a zoologist, right? I mean, that yeah. that's what his career is. So that doesn't quite that doesn't sort of quite match the. The, the the characterization i that that troubled me a little bit i don't know whether it troubled you yeah but i agree with you actually that naivety uh being a professional uh doesn't quite hang together very well no what about you jackie did did you like the innocent i'm looking forward to seeing it this week ah very good and and what about you gregory um i agree it wasn't quite as funny or as um fast and furious as the sort of Advertising made it seem to be. I thought it was a bit clunky for a lot of the time there. I thought it only came alive in in the last forty minutes or so. But I agree, there is some good ca- chemistry between um, Louis Garrel and Naomi Merlad there in their roles there. Um, but yeah, and look for me, it didn't quite work as it should have there. Uh, yeah, so it's a bare pass for me. Really? Okay. Well, it's interesting. I, I, I'm going to give it better than a bare pass. I. I think it still had its moments, but unfortunately, and this is where you often judge things harshly, films set up contentions reasonably sometimes, but then when the payoff isn't there, you feel shortchanged. And, and I think that's what you and I were talking about, Peter, that this is certainly the case here. And I, I actually saw this while I was in Sydney. Now, the other interesting part about this is my wife came along and she also sort of felt ho-hum. So, you know, it, it's disappointing in as much as, well, what does this say about the Cesar Awards, that this won the best screenplay? Uh, I'm not sure what other French movies have up yet. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's part of the problem here. The screenplay didn't quite hang together the way it should have. But that's just my opinion. So uh, what are we going to give it out of 10? Uh, start with you, Greg. Five out of 10. Okay, Peter? Yeah, it was up against Night of the Twelfth and some other films, which I thought were better scripts. But anyway, look, I, look I'll look, i give it six out of ten because I do admire the director, Louis Garrel. He does a reasonable job with it. 
Yeah, and I, I think it's a six and a half out of ten. So yeah, I mean it's uh, it's not a world beater. It's not a terrible film either, but it's sort of a, it, it verges on average or maybe slightly above, but no no better than that. That is the innocent. So we reach a point in first on film and entertainment where we talk about another movie. Which now this is a strange one, and I don't I haven't done this a lot, but I didn't last this one, and I. Maybe I need to go back and see it again. Uh, and, and I mean, it's been raved about by in some circles. And I'm talking about EO, a movie about a donkey. Now, okay, so let's go to the, the director. He's an 84-year-old. His name is Jersey Skolomowski. This is his first film in 70 years. It's 87 minutes. It's MA rated. And this is the Cannes Jury Prize winner, EO. Third film, he's written in collaboration with his wife, Eva Piskowska. And the film is loosely inspired by a seminal 1966 movie. I'm not sure whether you saw this one, Peter, or Hazard Balthazar. Yes, the Robert Bresson film, which is a terrific film, yeah. Now, it's interesting reading into this a little bit that Skolomowski said he hasn't been moved to tears in any movie other than our Hazard Balthazar. And, and that's obviously the film that inspired this one. And it follows the travails of a grey Sardinian donkey by the name of E.O. And in follows the exploits across the Polish and Italian countryside. That A lot of um, dream sequences during his travels, the donkey's helped and hindered by the people that he meets. And it, it, the film starts off in, in, in a circus-type setting. And the... I'm not sure whether that person, yeah, the person that rides him or whatever in the circus has got a real love affair with the donkey, absolutely adores him, but the donkey's taken away because animals and circuses don't mix. That's basically the contention. And you've got various people along the way. This is told from a donkey's perspective, and it actually actually utilises what's called donkey vision, so it's visually quite distinctive. Not many words are spoken. And, and I mean, amongst the people that the the donkey meets, there's a young Italian priest, a countess, a rowdy Polish soccer team that adopts the uh, the donkey as their mascot, and it it invites the audience to see the world through the eyes of its four legged protagonist. Now, I get all of that, but I just found it hard going, and I I just I didn't last the distance, and and uh, I maybe I'll have to go back, but it it just didn't didn't uh, do it for me. Jackie, what about you? Oh, so yeah, same, Alex. I wanted to love this film. I had heard so much about it. And in the film, as he is pronounced, it um, it, it, I really loved the idea of seeing the world and particularly the, the follies and the variety in the, in the way humans live their lives through the eyes of a donkey um, with the emphasis on eyes because they're really beautifully shot and very soulful and I really wanted to experience what I read that I thought would be in this film. And instead, it was just really a bit of a load of claptrap, really, with some very discordant and annoying music, noise, really, sounds, rather than music, and uh, red filters. I didn't really understand what that was all about. And um, uh, particular chapters of this um, journey that the donkey was on, um, 
some some were weird, like, you know, seeing him kind of thinking back to his time with the girl in a romantic kind of way. That was yeah. a bit odd. And there was a there was a very random chapter with Isabel Hoppet in um that made no sense at all. I didn't know what that was doing there and the donkey wasn't in it. And overall it was just rather random and confusing. Mm. Uh, what about you, Greg? Did you get more out of EO? No, I didn't specifically like this film. I thought visually and thematically it was fairly ugly film there. Um, it's a script from Stolinski. Seems to make, be made up of a lot of vi- vignettes that are unresolved as the film moves from one instant to the next. There were um, some interesting cinematography, as you said, there, especially giving us a view of humanity, the best and worst of humanity from the donkey's perspective there. Um there's some interesting cinematography of the landscapes of Poland and Italy there. and so, But there are some scenes, as Jackie said, that are bathed in a vivid red. I'm not sure why. Maybe it's symbolic of blood or something. Um, and there's even an evocative sequence there as EO approaches a windmill that's probably an allusion to Don Quixote and his, the futility of his quest there. Uh, the film is largely dialogue-free there. And, yeah, as Jackie said, heaps of critics have fallen over themselves to lavish praise on the film, but I'm not sure why. Um, there are, it's not a film that's going to have broad appeal for mainstream audiences. There have been much better films about animals on a long journey that are much more enjoyable um, and make much more sense than this one. And I'm with Jackie. I'm not sure what that sequence with Isabel Rupert was doing there. That made no sense at all. Well, I, I suppose, Peter, you're going to put, put a voice of reason to all of this, aren't you? You're going to tell <laughs> this is a this is a world beater that deserves all the praise that it's received, Correct. Correct. This is a... Hey, where did I pick this from? <laughs> I can always rely upon you to come through. Well done, my friend. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay. 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 So um, let, let, let me start you at this point. Is yeah. it, where does... Can you explain that scene, please? She is a landowner that uh, has donkeys and other animals, uh, mainly horses, in on her estate. and uh, And so the film does look at uh, a little bit of her story with her son, I think it is. And it's uh, uh, it, it's just a, an interesting aspect to the different stories that are put together in this film. Look, this is a, uh, I think it's a superb film because it is a, a great observation of how um, an animal, and in subtext how we, view what is happening in contemporary Europe. Uh, the, the good and the bad aspects of life that uh, are, are part of the, uh, um, I suppose, what's happening right now and uh, and the way the donkey is treated. It is about a life journey and there are some hints about uh, the donkey's life journey. It's interesting to note that uh, the red filter and all that is uh, some of the hints, uh, that they used one main donkey and five stunt donkeys for uh, some of the other. <laughs> well, that's, so that's a profession now, a stunt donkey. Good. That's right. That's magnificent. Do they breed stump donkeys? This this is the, your your task for the week, Peter. Fine. Are they from New Zealand, Peter? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'll ask Russell. But uh, but uh, but I think I think they Mr. Don't look... Crote, Mr. Crow to you. Sorry. Oh, uh, I think they're making a bit of an ass of ourselves, dear. Oh, no, stop it! Come on. Is it? They... Are we talking about Igor? Yeah, uh, uh, but I think they stole a few donkeys from the Banshees of Inisherin, but that's another story. Anyway, <laughs> uh, <laughs> look, EO uh, is Oscar nominated for Best International Film, and I can see why it was nominated. It is a quite unusual, uh, revelatory journey 
of this donkey's experiences um, and beautifully shot. I really like the music. I think the, the use of discordant as well as harmonious music is, is very cleverly done. I think there's a lot to admire about this film. I really enjoyed it. Wow. Okay. Well, I mean, I because I didn't last the distance, I'm not, not going to score this one. I don't think it's fair. Uh, but I will ask the rest of you who presumably sat through the 87 minutes. And it's funny, I got a text from uh, somebody last night who sees a lot of movies as well. And all, they also struggled enormously with it. Right? So it, it's going to be one. It's a very small audience movie is what I'd be saying, Peter. Would you not? Well, yes, but uh, like, niche like, films are fine. No, no, that doesn't make it a bad film in any way, shape, or form. No. But it's it's going to be a very selective film. So, look, let's start with you, Greg. Score out of ten. Look, I thought the donkey had expressive eyes that seemed to give insight into his observations. There, sorry, I no, uh, to give the donkey a voice, but I, I'm going to give this one four. I didn't enjoy the experience at all. Sorry, when you say this donkey had expressive eyes, how many donkeys on film have you seen? That don't have expressive eyes. of Insurance, um, a lot of um, Winnie the Pooh and Eeyore. And this, this, this donkey stood out to you, clearly. Yeah, at least, yeah. Anyway, as I said, four out of ten, I didn't enjoy the experience at all. Okay. Jacqueline. Um, look, I really, um, maybe my score is lower because I really hoped and expected to get a real, a wonderful experience from this film and I was hugely disappointed. I'm sorry, I can't, and I found it aggressive too. Maybe what Peter says, all these things about what's going on in Europe. Sorry, for me, it was about a donkey. So, you know, I gave it three out of 10. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. So, and I'm so glad it only went for 88 minutes because no, no, don't, if it didn't take any longer, I might not have lasted any further. <laughs> Please don't push it. It was 87. Sorry, IMDB 88. Yeah. But never mind. I was there. You weren't. I no no. I yes, <laughs> yes. That's very very true. <laughs> no, I look at the Australian film. Funnily enough, I'm not sure why this is, but there is a discrepancy often between the Australian classification and the length of the film and the IMDb. Can can any of you explain why, Peter? Do you have any? It might be how long it takes to close the curtains at the end. That might be extra limit. Okay, we've now got on from the sublime to the ridiculous. Very, very good indeed. Um, now, Peter, you're going to rescue this movie and you're going to give it a, a score in the eight and above territory, aren't you? I certainly am. I think it's oh, a sublime film. It was, it was Oscar nominated for a good reason and a lot of Oscar voters saw how good a film it was and I agree with them. Eight out of ten from me. Wow. Wow. So wow. Now, so collectively there's been three people giving their views and you've, you've given it a 15 out of 30. So there we go. So you either believe in every word that Peter speaks or you go the other direction. Now, we, we're, we're fast running out of time, so we won't have a lot of time today. I think we'll just hold this over. There's another movie I wanted to discuss, which is a, a really important film called The Innocent. And I We've talked about The Innocent. No, but right. You mean broker. I mean broker. Yeah. So I was thinking of one word or two words. I mean broker. Now, it, it is a very, I, I thought it was a really well put together movie. So, you know, we won't spend a lot of time now because uh, time will be against it. But we will, we'll talk in detail about it next week. What I will say is a bit of a tease is the contention is as follows. And apparently this happens. There's a baby box in a church in South Korea. 
this is a place where women can leave newborns to be picked up and cared for by those who care about the the future of of, of this young innocent that's left behind. Now, I, I'm not familiar. I mean, are any of you familiar with this as a practice? Because clearly, uh, the director, when I was reading about uh, the director, he, he said, "Look, yeah, this is a thing." And, and and South Korea is not the only place it takes place. Are, are any of you aware of this? Or have been? No? I, I wasn't, but I did know that the Japanese director of the film, who also directed Shoplifters, yes. also had some cases in Japan where that, that did happen, where newborn yeah. babies were left. Yeah. yeah, I read that as well. I mean, oh, pardon me, I'm about to choke, so I'm just taking a drink of water. Mm. It's not nice when that happens. <coughs> pardon me. So yeah, I mean, I I think the direct the director's a very fine fine um, exponent of the craft. I mean, really, very accomplished. This is a very mature piece of work, and what surprised me about it was that it it re- it really is a drip feed film, and you learn more as it goes along. And I just thought the pacing of it was perfect. I I, I didn't know what to expect when I was going in, but I came out of it thinking, well, this really makes you think and. So it's achieved exactly what the writer and director wanted to achieve. Kore Ida Hirokazu is his name. We'll talk more about it next week. Jackie, thank you very much for joining us. And Greg. And uh, Alex, maybe I could say if people in the meantime, because Broker has been out for a, a week or two, if yes. people, you know, do find it on still, it's not going to be one that will last for a very long time in the cinemas. So to get out and see it. Good, good uh, recommendation. Greg King, uh, I want more of your. Um, dad jokes uh because look on it over a week yeah, there's clearly not enough and, and uh peter as the voice of reason the recalcitrant it's been a pleasure that it certainly is a pleasure and i endorse jackie's comments about going to see broker okay terrific and greg you've seen it you you'll be able to talk about it knowledgeably next week too i'm up to date with all i've still always you know so i'm up to date with most films good on you folks enjoy your week be kind to one another We'll catch you next week on First on Film and Entertainment.